0: Wonder working in the Incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. You may wish to adjust the dial you're currently tuned into. The wrong station. And welcome to you, dear listener. Welcome to the self guided audio tour for the 10 year retrospective of the great Eloise Kestrel's life and work. But more on her later. I can feel your ears twitch and your brow furrow as you stand there wondering who exactly this handsome voice belongs to. Never fear, though, unlike Damien Hurst's infamous dead shark, I won't keep you in suspense. <laughs> yes, your suspicions are correct. It is I, Charles Molothrus. Charles Molothrus, beloved art critic, recipient of the Order of Canada, and winner of the prestigious Kristen Prescott Award. I am the foremost expert on the work of Eloise Kestrel. My best-selling titles include The Witching of Eloise Kestrel, Numerology in Kestrel, and the Pulitzer-nominated Eloise Kestrel, An Unexamined Life. All of these volumes are available in the gift shop on your way out. Lastly, I'm the gracious recipient of honorary degrees from Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, Carnegie Mellon, and several other institutions, not worth mentioning in such a brief introduction. But you are now standing at the precipice of my crowning achievement as an art critic and curator, the Eloise Kestrel Career Retrospective Exhibit, which commemorates the 10th anniversary of the artist's death at 31. Eloise Isabel Kestrel, also known as the Oracle of Canada, but I shall call her Eloise from now on. After all, we were friends. What can be said about Eloise that hasn't already been said? In fact, what can be said about her that hasn't already been said by me? She is one of the great guiding lights of Canadian contemporary art, and, despite a foolish departure into performance later in life, one of the few modern artists to become a household name. Eloise was born in the quaint village of Hampton, New Brunswick. While researching my claimed book, I endeavored to drive through Hampton, In fact, I drove through it several times before realizing that this was, in fact, the entire village. It is hard to imagine more humble beginnings for Canada's blind oracle. Yet it was here that her vision began to take shape. Now gaze upon several representative pieces of her juvenilia which stand in front of you, produced between the ages of nine and seventeen. Many of these sketches are of meager Hampton, sketches which almost vibrate with her hatred of this insignificant town. After them, a still life of flowers collected from the side of the road, tolerably rendered in watercolour. Below that, a portrait of her father, grinning ironically, painted in kaleidoscopic hues. It is hard not to see his contempt for her artistic desires, his lack of encouragement. Imagine if he had successfully pushed her away from the arts. What a loss that would have been. Here I shall read from Eloise's private journals on the very subject. Dad sat for me today. He was practically bouncing on the chair, trying to make me laugh. He wanted to see my improvements after a summer at art camp. By the end, all I could see were the flaws in the portrait, but he told me I was working hard and should be proud of that. Brave girl, it's hard not to see that beneath this almost careless entry, she was tormented by this man, as all children are by their fathers, praising her not for her talent, but merely for the sweat she produced, as if she were merely another animal on the farm, meant to be fenced in and kept from her true potential.' I have a soft spot for the young Eloise. Her father was much like mine, brutish, uncouth man who saw no value in escaping the bonds of the ordinary to become something more, to become one of the truly elite. That life would begin when Eloise entered university and was exposed to the keen intellect and prodigious talent of her peers, myself chief among them. Let us admire one final example of her early technical feats. On canvas, this is a classic landscape in oil, Here, Eloise shows us a maritime beach, but she, like many young artists, has made the error of arriving at the wrong time of day. She's not captured the glorious sunrise, nor the sultry sunset, but instead the dull, foggy pre-dawn. The clouds here are gray oil smeared across the canvas like mucus in layers a quarter inch thick. The sand contains a hint of salmon within the brown, capturing the iron content on the beach. A set of footprints disappears into the water, On the horizon, there is a feminine touch of yellow where the sun will rise. Glaring flaws aside, it's not bad for an amateur. It was the crowning piece for her portfolio, a portfolio that was deemed worthy of a scholarship to the elite Trinity College, the university of choice for the children of Canada's titans of industry and art, whose mere whims can move the entire earth, the only place for great minds like Eloise's and mine. Once safely ensconced on campus, her cruel father caged far away in Hampton, Eloise was akin to a seed in rich, fertile oil. She only needed the sun and rain of the student artist community to begin her growth. Meanwhile, I had received a full scholarship to study pre-Christian religions and art history, also at Trinity College, despite my father's lack of financial support. I've always been drawn to secret knowledge, to the hidden tongues and symbols that the great used to commune with the great, Perhaps this is what has shaped me into the leading critic I am today. But, as we'll discover, my education would have a larger impact than anyone expected, both for myself and, sadly, for Eloise. I first met Eloise as I left a dinner party hosted by my dean. My humility usually forbids me from saying this, but I must admit, even among the brilliant professors in attendance, I was sparkling. Something of an academic coming out for me. She and I passed in the hallway, "'Me stepping down wearing a light linen suit, shirt open in the Italian style, "'her trundling up with her canvas and oils, "'all five foot ten inches crammed into a house painter's coveralls. "'She was the only person I'd ever seen dressed in such a fashion. "'But her flaunting of social convention endeared her to me. "'After all, she and I had dug ourselves out of similar trenches. "'My hometown of Walther Falls was much like Hampton, "'my clueless and uncouth father much like hers. "'Eloise and I shared a history.' as we would soon share a present and future. From then on, we saw each other regularly around campus or at the near-daily parties that filled the halls, always liberally supplied with fine spirits provided by our social and economic betters. At these parties, I would hold forth on Gnostic religions, telling chilling and lightly embellished stories about human sacrifice and the demonic horrors that lurk behind the veil. Eloise may not have appeared interested, but, well, we shall see. It was the kind of intellectual marriage that our fathers would have hated. He was happy to work his nine-to-five custodial shifts and read his Stephen King's. Little did he know that his son's writing would soon command an entire library shelf. Ah, excuse my digression. Hanging before you is Eloise's first work on a large canvas, titled The Maintenance Women." It shows the Grand Hall at Trinity College, after dinner service has ended. The students of this elite institution are nowhere to be seen. The great lights in the chandelier are dimmed. The small forms of cleaning women, many clearly immigrants, are seen tidying plates, tables, and overturned chairs. They perform this work in the shadow of the hall's great tapestry, depicting Solomon meeting the Queen of Sheba. As a technical piece, Eloise has managed something brilliant. Look closely at the brushwork, how she lovingly crafted each and every grain of the carved wood in the great hall. And yet, both the hall and the tapestry feel devoid of life. The only figures that appear truly real are the cleaning women, who stand tall and strong in colors that draw the eye. Upon seeing their vibrancy, one finds oneself wishing Eloise had chosen a more exciting scene to paint. In my view, and by that I mean the correct view, this piece is the work of a subconscious mind throttled by sexual frustration. The hall is, of course, representative of the mystical vagina. These erect women present as small male genitalia, supplicating themselves to the female hall. It is grotesque and Somewhat humorous, a perverted inversion of the natural order, which she'll begin to explore more fully in what I have termed her Black Mass period. Eloise entered this piece in student competitions with subpar results. Her work at this time was technically impressive, but inconsistent. She'd not yet discovered her path. I read again from her private journals. Latest oil was a bust. The faculty can't see women, and the students can't see anyone with less than two million in their trust fund. What the hell am I doing here? Such bitterness. No wonder her art took the turn it did. But for now, let me jump ahead. Graduation was an exciting affair. Tearful goodbyes, promises to keep in touch, a final hurried rut in an empty freshman dorm room. But Eloise was nowhere to be seen. She and I had grown apart. I rarely saw her, but with my life taking off in a million directions at once, I hardly noticed." It was only later I discovered she'd left immediately after final exams, retreating to her father's home in New Brunswick. Yes, to the very cage where she'd been imprisoned. Why she returned, I'll never know. As for me, I would never return to the haven of sub that was Walther Falls. Bigger and better things awaited, as I'd always known they had. From then on, I was on my own. Two years later, serendipity struck as I was returning to my cozy apartment following a riveting salon at the Weston Estate. I spied a moving van emptying its contents into the street outside the door. Scattered among cheap Scandinavian furniture and art books were a collection of wrapped canvases. Intrigued, I meandered about, waiting for the artist. And then, lo, there she was, Eloise. We were neighbors once again. In fact, quite a bit more than neighbors. Yes, Kronos's needle and thread had sutured the wounds of the past. Now all can be revealed. Molothrus and Eloise. Eloise and Molothrus, We were lovers. A night of drinks and reminiscences turned to lovemaking. Thereafter, our spirits mingled intimately for two glorious weeks, and we left each other forever changed. That may not sound like a long relationship, but time is a funny thing for us artists. What is the quote? There are decades where nothing happens, and there are weeks where decades happen. Thank you, Mr. Lennon, for that bit of insight. But, yes, our sexual relationship came to a sudden halt one evening. I smiled knowingly as she, quote-unquote, let me down gently. Dear listener, you know as well as I that this boundary was her bulwark against falling into a complete, overwhelming obsession with me. I redoubled my romantic advances for a few weeks, only for her to move to an entirely new building— You may have run, Eloise, but I was always with you. For you see, with my mentorship, Eloise produced her greatest works during this period. We shall see them later, I assure you. A finale to end all finales. As you can see with this next selection of pieces, her talent had much improved. In fact, prior to our lovemaking, she completed a show at a tiny gallery a few blocks away. Amazingly, she'd even sold a few minor works, gathering enough attention for a solo show at the glamorous Galerie des Monk. It was to be the site of the next major event in her life, the night of the fall. I attended in an official capacity as an art critic, I'd been hired by a local alt-weekly both to report on the art scene and, I suspect, to raise the profile of the entire publication. I was working for free at the time while I waited for my brilliance to be discovered by the right kind of people. I expected to be welcomed as an old friend, but Eloise barely had time for me. How could she spurn such an essential influence on her work, you may ask? Well, she was busy negotiating with several buyers, all of whom were anxious to purchase her latest piece. It hangs before you now, this first example of Eloise's mature style. A portrait of her father completed in New Brunswick. He sits in the kitchen, looking out the window, face tilted up to greet the sun streaming in. His hair, unusually long, is mostly hidden under a kerchief. Eloise has taken the pose from the Italian Renaissance, but for reasons known only to her, adapted it to this domestic scene. Her oils are lively and bright. Critics less well-versed in Eloise's story mark this as a deeply personal piece about the dual-parenting role her single father played, with religious poses elevating the subject to the level of icon. I must disagree. Look closely. Note the number of curls that peek out from her father's kerchief. That would be six. And the spoons in the drying rack? Six again. I don't have to tell you how many birds are outside the window. Six, six, six. The number of the beast. I say that this is the first example of Eloise's mature style because it is the first example of her growing obsession with the Gnostic religious cults, magic, and demon worship. Taken as a whole, these symbols are a clear signal that she viewed her father as an evil creator god, a malevolent force in her life. And where did she first encounter these symbols? Ah, my influence is so clear when you know what to look for. But, in that moment, I had yet to notice this essential pattern. As the price rose and rose, I became, I admit, a little jealous. Not enough to do anything, of course. In fact, only if I had noticed that spilled champagne at the top of the steps, I could have saved her from that horrible fall. Yes, yes, there are rumors she was pushed, but I can promise you, as someone who was there, I would have seen if that had happened. Besides, she sold six paintings that night. A coup. If anything, her concussion helped loosen some purse strings. I watched from afar as her sales and profile rose rapidly over the next year. Eloise became remarkably prolific, as you can plainly see. But work and press obligations left her no time for her old mentor, Charles Molothrus. Initially, replies to my letters were curt and, frankly, rude, considering all I'd done for her. Soon I stopped receiving any replies at all. I began to grow deeply concerned. Take a quick look at the canvases from this period before you. They may appear normal to you, but my trained eyes reveal a plethora of Gnostic symbolism. Hidden onks, trees of life, serpents, and goat horns. The devil does not exist. All sane people know that, but that does not stop people from praying to him, making deals with people who claim to serve him, or practicing witchcraft. Yes, Eloise had moved beyond mere symbolism. My expert analysis of her works and journals from this time indicate that she was engaging in small rituals and potion-making under the misguided belief that it would enhance her work. A harmless eccentricity, for now. Eloise writes in her journal at the end of this busy year, "'Gallery showing in Berlin was exhausting, "'missing the empty shorelines at Dad's. "'Missing Dad, too. "'I'll tell Val to cancel my appearance in London "'so I can visit and get some actual work done, "'instead of just wearing dresses and standing next to art.' I feel like I can't even see straight. Note the reference to London, which just so happens to be the headquarters for the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Separately, she uses the phrase, see straight. This is the first time Eloise notices the degradation of her vision. Cataracts. They formed quickly and Eloise was forced to abandon her work. By all accounts, she must have seen every doctor in the country, but all gave her the same answer. Due to a congenital condition, the cataracts could not be removed without severe risk to her life. It appeared that her painting career was over. Of course, it gave me no pleasure to hear that. Eloise went through a period of mourning. She abandoned her tour and decamped to her father's home, from whence she was neither seen nor heard for several months. When she finally did emerge, it was with a white cane and a new purpose. God knows what horrible things her father told her. She tried several avenues, experimenting with dance and tableau, but received largely negative feedback from the critical community. Here, I've decided to include the text of several withering reviews, a couple of them my own. But, of course, that's just how Eloise and I were with one another. Brutal honesty is an artist's best friend. To my eye, it was as if blindness had driven her away from all the things that were beautiful and worthwhile in the world. It was sad to watch her exploit herself, sadder still to know that her dalliance with the occult had come with such a massive cost. A sad end for a talent like her. Or so it should have been. Like some sick joke by some mad demiurge, this self-exploitation would become the art that transformed her into a household name. This woman, who I once loved—yes, loved—would go on to debase herself for sold-out crowds around the world, and— for what? A piece with no merit and nothing to recommend it. This piece, some will have you believe, was Eloise's magnum opus, her lolita, her telltale heart. Yet that is simply not the case. We will come to her true masterwork later. But this piece, if it even deserved to be called that, was entitled A Walk With My Family. As she intended, none of the performances were ever recorded, except for one short video, collected without her consent, which you can find displayed in the next room. Personally, I recommend against watching it, and, in fact, I argued against its inclusion in the retrospective. Instead, I shall describe it to you. The stage would be empty, except for a simple wooden box. After surrendering their phones, the audience would file into the auditorium, They would take their seats, get comfortable, discuss sophisticated things like restaurants and wines. Then Eloise would hobble in with her cane. She would not speak to quiet the audience, merely stand quietly until they noticed her. It hardly seemed to matter if they were paying attention. She stood almost as if in a trance. The effect was not helped by her degrading eyes, which stared off into the middle distance, cloudy as an overcast sky. Three hundred slips of paper were nestled within the wooden box. She would pull one out, read it to herself, and then replace it in the box. Then she would exit the building. The audience was given the choice to follow or not. Eloise would lead the audience into an outdoor arena, the gallery gardens, the nearby woods, even a construction site if nothing else was available. A circle of high-visibility flags would transcribe a rough, wide circle about half a kilometer in circumference, which wound around the uneven terrain, rising and falling, passing over tree roots and rabbit dens. Auditorium chairs would be placed in the center of that circle. Once the audience were seated, Eloise would take her position at the first flag and begin her performance. Her walk. The first few circuits were easy. The audience would watch as she carefully stepped her way around them, twisting in their chairs to follow her progress the entire 360 degrees. Though as night fell, which could be as early as 4 p.m., depending on the latitude of the country and time of year, she would begin to stumble. The path ahead dissolved into night. Her feet would catch on exposed rocks. Her ankles would be slapped by air and shrubs. She would fall. Yet she would not stop. The audience would become unnerved, uncomfortable watching this beautiful woman torture herself. Some audience members would leave. Most stayed. Then, after Eloise had fallen a few times, something surprising would happen. Unbidden, one of the audience members would leave their seat. They would help her up, lifting her to her feet. She would acknowledge the help with a slight nod, and then continue the circuit. Inevitably, she would fall again, her gazelle legs akimbo, and this time three or four audience members would help her to her feet. She would continue the walk, you no know, steadier than before, even less steady from the accumulated scratches and bruises. Perhaps one would stay with her for the rest of the circuit, holding her arm. But then they would both fall. The rest of the audience would rise in a slow wave, as if understanding something. They would walk by her side, gently holding her arms. Or maybe a group would walk in front to act as a warning system for uneven ground and catch her as she fell forward. Or perhaps they would form a circle of checkpoints along the circuit, guiding her from one person to the next. Or maybe the audience would guide her in shifts, rotating every few circuits, almost without communicating. They would exit and enter the circuit when it seemed right, not caring about dirtying their going-out attire. I saw more than one Hermes' scarf trod underfoot. A miserable casualty. But there was one thing the audience would never do. They would never carry her. They would never walk for her. They seemed to understand that she would simply not allow this. The walk was her responsibility. And what was that responsibility? It was whatever they decided. They were free to leave. Eventually the walk would end. Eloise would guide them back to the gallery. They would get their phones, collect their things, and return home. Some nights it would be over almost as soon as it began. Other performances would continue well into the next day. For you see, only Eloise knew how long her walk would be. Those slips of paper, the ones in the box, had the numbers from one to three hundred written on them. An entrancing meditation on disability beautifully blurs the line between artist and viewer, a performance piece that will change your life. That's what the critics said, and people rushed forth to participate. Some critics said that. As you can guess, I was not among them. I mean, really, such drama, such narcissism, and for what? Nothing. What is being said here, truly? I see nothing beautiful about codependency. I see nothing profound in piteous wallowing. Worst of all, it created nothing. No great canvas, no lifelike sculpture. It is quote-unquote art that will die with those who experienced it. I ask, how can such work be considered relevant? That is the power of the critic. Through our eloquent deconstructions, we can imbue shoddy work with meaning it simply doesn't have, and the masses will lap it up. In many ways, it makes us more important than the artists themselves. You could see us as a sort of godlike figure, breathing a soul into lifeless clay. I saw a walk with my family, just one time. She'd returned to Canada to do a show in Montréal. I'd been hired by a small but influential art blog to write a 200-word review. That evening, a massive snowstorm hit the venue. Most of the audience didn't show, and those who did quickly fled the freezing outdoor seats. Eventually, I was alone as I watched Eloise make her circuits through the three feet of snow. I felt nothing but pity. She slipped and slid, gritted her teeth, and kept going. She didn't seem to care that the audience had left, as if completing the piece was somehow more important than that. When she fell for the final time, I could hear her wrist snap, followed by a scream, it nauseated me. There was nothing beautiful in this art. I rose from my seat and trudged home, feeling discouraged and unnerved by the seemingly endless cries for help. I suppose I admire her for returning the next day to complete the work, plaster cast and all. I hardly need note how the movement of Eloise in repetitious circles mirrors occult rituals going back thousands of years, from the Freemasons to ancient Kabbalah. But as this misunderstood piece continued to take the world by storm, a miracle happened doctors in Europe found a way to mitigate Eloise's cataracts with minimum risk to her health. Thanks to her global success, Eloise was able to book a flight to Germany and immediately receive the treatment. Within days, she could see again. I was thrilled, of course, but deeply troubled. But why? This should have been the next chapter in her celebrated career, correct? Well, as she describes in her journal, Eloise's cataracts were stellate, which is to say star shaped Ah, but we'll return to that in a moment. (sighs) Breathe in. Now look up. You now stand before the final work of Eloise's life. A larger-than-life unfinished self-portrait, that much is obvious, made with unusual paints, which are even now beginning to fade. She sits here on a maritime beach, just outside her father's home. Her father had sadly passed away in the weeks prior to the commencement of this work, causing Eloise much distress. While she was surely glad to be without his dominating presence, a death in the family is always difficult. Eloise handcrafted the paint for this work using dyes and pigments derived from the wildlife around her father's home, shells, flowers, and other sources. An untrained eye might see this as a tribute to this man and this place, but one versed in the life of Eloise Kestrel sees the connection between mixing paint and ancient forms of witchcraft. Which brings me to the final tragedy of her life. I had attempted to contact Eloise with my congratulations on her restored sight. Unfortunately, my many calls were left unanswered and my letters returned. Had she forgotten me? No. Impossible. Something else was brewing. Like storm clouds. Like a cauldron. Anyone with even a passing interest in art knows the timeline of the following story. But I am the only one with knowledge of the details. One night, with very little fanfare, Eloise appeared on the evening news in an interview segment. In it, she announced to an astonished world that she was returning to painting. Her next gallery show would open in a few months, starting at a small gallery in New Brunswick that her and her father regularly attended. I remember the evening of the interview very well. It was, after all, the night I lost two of the most important people in my life. Just moments before the news about Eloise broke, I received word that my father had passed away. He had not passed away that night. No, it had happened six months prior. I had not spoken to him in over ten years. I only discovered the news when a box of his effects found its way to my apartment door. I opened the box, not really upset or unhappy. After all, he had never understood me. But then, why did my hands tremble so? Why did my eyes well up at the objects within? I can see them now. A stack of letters he'd sent me. All returned to sender, of course. A folder filled with clippings of my reviews. Even ones I'd forgotten I'd ever written. Where did he even find them? They were barely published, only fifty at most. Was he the only one? And that message transcribed in his shaky hand. The hand of a cancer patient. A message that both forgave and and uh, pleaded for reconciliation. Guilt? Uh, Never considered. And all those years alone. Ahem. I suppose it was his final manipulation. I shook myself from the dead man's spell and turned my attention to the television. At that very moment, as if planned by some greater force, Eloise's interview blared out at me. A peek at one of her latest paintings was included. Another of her father, much in the same style as the unfinished self-portrait you see before you. I ran up close to the screen, dropping the last miserable vestiges of my father's life. Yes, the numbers and secret words were there, buried but present. A few circled letters spelled out Baphomet, significant Gnostic numbers and symbols hidden at the edges of the canvas, even on the frame. Truly, I had been the blind one. There was no way she could have missed the significance nor the power of that symbol. Stellate. Star shaped cataracts. Doctors say that this is common for cataracts caused by head injury. Hers were apparently due to the fall she suffered at the gallery show years ago. A star? A star, yes. Morning star, Lucifer, the sun, the sun god, Ra, the star is the sign of creator gods. She must have seen the cataracts as proof that her fealty to the demiurge had been accepted. With dawning horror, I began to see this new, grand work for what it was, and how close it must be to completion. My god, poor Eloise! What had she done already? What might she do if left to her a craze of Isis for even one night longer?' I made my way to her home, running as fast as my perfect body would let me. I arrived, gasping for air, and found her door locked. No matter. Who knew what horrible rituals were happening inside that house? I could see shadows dancing on her walls. A horned head briefly glimpsed between the second-story curtains. A horrible, bellowing like that of a sacrificed bull echoing through my mind. I would not let her be lost to the forces of darkness. It was a breezy summer night. I slipped in through an open window and began my rescue. Strange laughter bounced throughout the house. The art that hung on the walls was grotesque and bizarre. It regularly featured not her father's face, but but mine, always in the same pose. Twenty years since I'd seen him, but there could be no doubt. What was Eloise's connection to the old man, rotting now half a year in his coffin? There was no time to consider it. I must get to Eloise. I heard horrible, maddening music playing from a back room. I availed myself of a pottery knife from a nearby table, not knowing what horrors I would find. Creeping along the walls, I approached the door and then threw it open. Now, I can only report the facts of what I saw, even if I hardly believe them, even if other critics call me mad. I am the only one who truly knew her, and I was the only one there that night. Inside sat a creature. It had the mucus-coated body of a serpent. Its front limbs were those of a wolf, and atop this fiendish mess sat a hideous goat's head with six long, twisting horns. It sat in front of a canvas, which faced away from me. The mad laughter grew and grew until it beat against the very doors of my mind, forcing me to surrender. But no, I gave a great shout and steeled my courage, holding the pottery knife out. The beast turned slowly, not expecting the arrival of a hero, and I took this opportunity to strike. I leapt forward, stabbing rapidly with surgical precision as its eyes widened in terror. Those eyes that were so like my father's. It was the work of mere moments, The beast was vanquished, its vicious blood pouring onto the rugs and dripping into the basement. I raced to the house, seeking the other cultists, seeking the source of that laughter which had not quieted even after the death of their idol. I found nothing but shadows. Eloise had either fled or been kidnapped. I ran home, fully intending to continue my search, but instead passed out on the bed from nerves the blood on my clothes destroyed that final letter from my father. Next morning it hit the newspapers. Eloise Kestrel, found dead in her home after a brutal attack. The goat-headed creature I'd slain, which I now realize must have been some dark priest in costume, had been carted off by his cultist friends along with the paintings of my father. Instead the gruesomely brutalized body of Eloise now rested in the room next to the canvas, Her murderers had done horrible things to her eyes. Those savages. Of course, I made myself available to the police in my capacity as an art critic and Eloise's dear, dear friend. I showed them the numerology contained in her paintings, informed them of the hidden Gnostic cult imagery. They were art novices, and my tutelage was valuable. Within three weeks, we were able to track down a disturbed young man who, after a protracted interrogation, did admit to killing Eloise. Without my help, the authorities would still be investigating. And yes, I appeared on the news a few dozen times to discuss Eloise's life and work. Some say I took advantage and leveraged this exposure into book deals and speaking engagements. The ridiculous ramblings of a few jealous nobodies, best ignored and forgotten. Oh, Eloise, if only you'd come to me, I could have saved you. I've replayed it ten thousand times in my head, all the things I should have done differently. Ah, but after death, eternal life. This is the brass ring for which all artists reach, but only a few truly grasp. We come now to the greatest work of her short and tragic life. I know this to be a fact. After seeing it, I'm sure you'll agree. Behold, the messy but distinguished graphite linework done with unsharpened pencil, the corrugated cardboard canvas grabbed from a pile of recycling, and the model, a young, handsome man with flaxen locks and fashionable thinness. He reclines, nude against a wall. His eyes gaze upward, as if searching for what it all means. Over the years, he has gained a few wrinkles, and his hair has grayed, but in all other respects, he remains the same man. "'Yes, the model is I, Charles Malthus. "'This masterwork was made at the explosive sexual intersection of our young lives. "'One evening, after our lovemaking, I implored Eloise to please, please draw me. "'She was resistant. I screwed up my courage and asked again. "'She refused, frightened of her own talent. "'In turn, I refused to leave her apartment until she accepted, "'blocking the door so neither of us could exit.' She eventually relented, hastily drawing it out on an old pizza box. She gave it to me, a gift, and I've kept it ever since. Our romance fizzled soon after. Imagine the work she could have created had our partnership continued. As you gaze upon this masterpiece, indulge me for a moment. I'd like to read a journal entry from this period in both our lives, perhaps the most enlightening one of all. Eloise writes, Charles came by at 2 a.m., I watched him pace back and forth with the people. He's really starting to worry me. Ah, sweet Heloise. Was this the source of your downfall? He's really starting to worry me. I always knew my intellect intimidated you, but I never imagined it would set you off on such a path, turning your fragile mind toward obsessions that can sometimes, sometimes make even the sturdiest of us question ourselves. (laughs) If you were here today, I would lift your downcast chin and tell you. You were always my equal. Ah. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit the gift shop on your way out. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Patrons can listen to The Wrong Station ad-free as well as get access to bonus episodes, discussions, and more. This week's episode, Eloise Kestrel, was written by Jacob Duarte Spiel and performed by Anthony Botello, with special thanks to Isabel Brandt for providing research, writing support, and additional material. Thank you to Kristen Love, Violet Bradbury, Lise Lalonde, Elizabeth Finlayson, Giovanni, and a very special thanks to Kristen Prescott for helping us keep the lights, well, off. The Wrong Station is co produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.